Hi, it's Ben Modell. I've been doing my silent film music podcast on and off, sometimes more off than on, since 2012. And, well, a few years ago, the first eight episodes of my podcast slid into a digital vortex. Well, I still have the audio files, it's just that episodes one through eight were suddenly unavailable for listeners and no longer appeared in the show's feed or anywhere online. I have no idea why this happened. Fortunately, some listeners of the Silent Film Music podcast, maybe you, have written in and let me know you're interested in hearing these earlier shows. And that's great. So, instead of falling down a bunch of rabbit holes, troubleshooting what happened, and trying to fix it, I'm just reposting each of these first eight episodes one at a time. Now, keep in mind as you listen to them that they were recorded several years ago. And now, here is episode 6 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell, originally posted on January 7, 2015. I talk about how I'm rebooting the podcast after about a year, (laughs) about launching my DVD label and my partnership with the Library of Congress. talk some more about accompanying My Best Girl with Mary Pickford, which you heard about in episode 5. I talk about the idea of using pre-existing music I talk about silent comedy shorts on public television in the 1970s, an LP recorded by Arthur Kleiner, MoMA's first film accompanist. I talk about scoring a silent film for concert band and my piece of chamber music called The Spice of the Program. Here now is episode six of the Silent Film Music Podcast from January 7th, 2015. Welcome to the Silent Film Music Podcast. This is Ben Modell, silent film accompanist and historian. Thanks for tuning in, if that's still the right word. This is episode six for air in January of 2015. And yes, I'm very much aware that episode five posted about a year and a half ago. To say I dropped the ball would be a major understatement. Uh, Dropping the ball, it turns out, is very easy. Picking it back up is not so easy. You actually wouldn't be hearing anything uh, at this point if it was not for the enthusiasm and efforts of Kendra Leonard of the Silent Film Music... No, Silent Film Sound and Music Archive, or SIFSMA. Much easier to remember than the full name, and I'm glad Kendra told me that it's not really an acronym or anything, but it's just easier to remember SIFSMA, just as it's much easier to remember Lantern instead of Media History Digital Library, which is a great resource for uh, trade publications and magazines from the silent era through the early sound era and through the 40s. And that's what SIFSMA is. It's a great online resource for original photoplay mood music cues from the silent film era as well as cue sheets and books published during the silent film era on film accompaniment and how to play the organ. There is a great deal of that stuff in special collections in libraries around the country and around the planet but you gotta live nearby and that's where SIFSMA that's S-F-S-M-A dot org comes in. Like I said, I got real busy with lots of projects and I just kept forgetting to pick up the pay, uh, pick up the work on the podcast and I needed a partner in crime on this and while fetching about this online uh, about a month ago, Kendra chimed in and said, "I'll help you." So, thank you Kendra. I can sit down and talk into this microphone and grab recordings of my performances, but the other parts, especially the part where I remember to do anything, uh, not as easy. And so there you have it. What have I been up to? Well, uh, I'm recording this in December of 2014 for Aaron in January of 2015, but I'll give you a few tidbits from 
what happened in 2014 more recently. Number one, I became a DVD label. Not on purpose, uh, per se. I, in the fall of 2012, actually, had a Kickstarter uh, to get rare and lost silent films that I had amassed, if that's the right word, in 16mm. They were just sitting on a shelf in my closet in my apartment. I figured if I have these things and they're lost... They're still lost if nobody can see them. And so I, inspired by Louis C.K., who had gone to direct to his fans to sell his Beacon Theater concert video instead of going through a distributor or HBO or Comedy Central, and made his money back and more over the course of a weekend, I went direct to fans of silent film and people who know my work to pledge money toward the project. Basically, what happened with that project and the next two Kickstarters I've done in each case is not only did fans say, yes, what a great idea, but we passed the funding goal by about $1,000 each time. The DVDs have been released on Amazon through their CreateSpace on-demand publishing service, which is for CDs, books, and DVDs, and now also streaming. Everybody shops at Amazon, and by having my DVDs available there, anybody can find them. Find them. I've sold several hundred copies of each of them. Uh, more on the mishaps of Must You Suffer, for instance, than maybe uh, Flying Luck with Monty Banks, uh, but. If you want to find this stuff, you can. And thanks to fans, this is now possible. It's a great new business model. It's like I found a wormhole of film distribution for films that a company like Criterion or Flickr Alley or Kino uh, won't won't uh, do the work on to release because it's not worth their, their, their time and their money and their effort. And that's absolutely fine. It's really up to uh, entrepreneurs, that's a word I made up, uh, like myself and other people, to say, well, I have access to something, and here's a way to get it transferred, and here's a way to fund it, and here's a way to get it out there. So if you go on Amazon.com and look for something called Accidentally Preserved, Volume 1 or 2, Flying Luck, starring Monty Banks, and The Mishaps of Musty Suffer. And if you're listening to this in January, keep your eyes peeled. That may not be very comfortable for you, but get some visine. Keep your eyes peeled for the Marcel Perez collection, because that'll be out by the end of January, I hope. Musty Suffer and Marcel Perez are two DVDs where I have sourced uh, films from the Library of Congress. The Library of Congress has always made films available. Yes, it's for a fee, but you can you can for a fee get either a copy on DVD or an HD video file in QuickTime ProRes or whatever format you need. And uh, through largely through the success of the accidentally preserved projects, um, this caught the eye of and ear and brains of a couple people at the Library of Congress. I now, and I now have a deal with the Library of Congress to access uh, material in the collection uh, to for the purposes of putting it out on DVD because it's a, not really an archives um, you know mission statement to put things out on DVD. They have the stuff, they preserve it, and in the uh, the case with the Library of Congress, they have a transfer facility and a lab. But like most archives, well, like all archives, they don't have their own DVD distribution arm. And that's for companies like Kino or Criterion, as well as independent producers like myself and a couple other outfits that are out there to do. But the material is available, and they're happy uh, when somebody uh, wants to make it available. Because, face it, if film sits on a shelf, whether it's at an archive or somebody somewhere in the, in the middle of the United States, um, if it just sits there, it's it's a rolled up, you know, reel of plastic. 
these things, these films were made to entertain people. So that's that's uh, one one thing that happened uh, last year. Um, I had a, a a lot of shows. Uh, luckily, the number of shows I performed uh, held steady, did not drop at all, it may have gone up a little bit, and I uh, got to do my undercranking talk uh, at Cinefest up in Syracuse last March, and again at the Museum of Modern Art uh, in November. I got to do it at Cinefest because two of the people who program Cinefest saw me do the talk at Mostly Lost at the Library of Congress in the summer of 2013. And then Dave Kerr saw me do the the talk at Cinefest, and uh, we worked out getting it into the To Save and Preserve, the To Save and Project Festival at MoMA. And now several hundred people have seen the this talk. There's some clips on YouTube, on a, a YouTube channel called Silent Film Speed, uh, where you see this. And for those of you who have not heard me talk about this on and on and on, it's basically the concept that during the silent film era, and I'm certain that everybody knew about this, people were aware that the films that they were making were being shown faster than the speed they were shot at and adjusted the way they moved so that they it didn't just look like film running too fast. It's part of a physical language everybody had in their bones from being in theater and vaudeville and music hall and circus. It also meant that there were things like uh, gags and action sequences that you could choreograph carefully so that when sped up they became gags or became dangerous looking stunts. And this is really what went out the window when sound came in. So take a look at youtube.com slash silent film speed and you'll be you'll be amazed not by me but by what these guys like Keaton and Chaplin and Harold Lloyd and everybody else knew and had as as part of their language and anybody making silent movies today needs to learn this and understand it if they're you know don't worry about wearing derbies and funny mustaches and getting an old car in your movie do this and then it'll really look like a silent film and not just a film with no sound the other thing that's been been neat is that I've actually met uh, two, actually three kids who were really interested in either silent film or silent film accompaniment. Um, there's a young man named Shane Fleming who's come to a number of my shows and has turned up at a lot of events here in the city and has been on TCM uh, as an, uh, sort of a super fan who is uh, 10 and, and, and like me and a lot of people... Uh, who I'm friends with and who maybe you, know, you yourself uh, at that age was just obsessed with classic film and silent film. I've met uh, there's a young man who's now 12. Uh, now uh, I met this, this, this young man, uh, Brett Miller, who is uh, interested in the organ and in film accompaniment, uh, who met me and came to a show I did. I let him sit at the at the con- the Worldser console at the uh, theater in Phoenixville. Oh, why am I blanking on the name? Anyway, it's the one where they shot uh, the blob. Um, but, uh, and absolutely became enamored of the sound of the theater organ. And I played a show at the AFI Silver in November and another 12-year-old boy, very interested in the organ, came up to talk to me because the, at the AFI there's an Allen electric organ and we talked about his interest in, in film accompaniment. Um, so, there will be people to push me in a wheelchair up onto the stage in about 30 years to introduce shows and to carry on the torch. Uh, you'd be surprised, thanks to YouTube, uh, love it or, or hate it, uh, that there are kids discovering silent movies and classic film and really, really into it. Now here's a segment of uh, a live performance score. Um, I... Uh, I think this is now the third year I've been doing this at the St. Francis College in Brooklyn. We do four shows a year. They're open for the general public, uh, usually daytime, so we get a lot of seniors. Uh, but there's also usually two or three film or communications classes that attend the shows. Uh, this is a segment from my performance uh, playing a Steinway A 
uh, recorded with my Zoom H4 recorder sitting on uh, on top of the right to the to just to the right of the music rack, pointed into the piano, which I have the lid up on a short stick. This is a couple minutes from my score for Mary Pickford in My Best Girl.
live in performance, yours truly at a Steinway A at St. Francis College, accompanying Mary Pickford's My Best Girl. And this is a score where I had I'd played for this uh, maybe a year or two previous. I'm trying to remember. I can't remember when, when it was. Uh, one of the things I uh, occasionally do uh, for a film where I have musical themes that Lee Irwin composed, I'll uh, print them out or try to get them into my fingers and use them in a score. And Lee uh, has a suite of themes from My Best Girl on... Uh, an album he recorded for Angel Records in the 70s called, oh, it's either Sounds of Silence or Sounds of the Silence or Sounds for Silence or there, you know, that, that, uh, that, that pun title has been used to death by now. And it was certain, I know he has two albums, one he recorded at the Beacon Theater and, and, uh, uh, released himself on his own label and then there's the one of the two albums, three albums he did for Angel with that name. Anyway, look for it on eBay or maybe maybe some theater organist you know has it. Um, Lee was never happy with the way the organ sounded on those recordings uh, because of the way it was mixed. Um, but it still sounds great. It's great to hear his music. And the, there were two music folio, folios published, I believe, by Belwyn. Of themes from that that match the the two albums, uh, and sometimes you know I'll take the themes that he's written and they they won't fit for me only because uh, my my style, um, just the music that I improvise, is is not you know there's a huge shift when I go from from my, what I'm doing to, into Lee's music, um, and sometimes it really really works and sometimes. Uh, I have a hard time with. It. In this case, it it really, it really did work. And I know my friend Bernie Anderson has done the same thing uh, when playing for My Best Girl. So that's what you heard. And as long as we're talking about uh, existing music or pre-composed music, and now that we have uh, a partner in crime on the podcast in SIFSMA or the Silent Film Sound and Music Archive, uh I thought it would be uh, good to talk about photoplay music uh, or mood music. Um, that was music that was published during the silent film era. For those of you who aren't super familiar with it, there was music published uh, maybe as early as 1913, possibly earlier. But really, the peak is really starting with around the time of uh, the release of Birth of a Nation all the way through 1928, maybe 1929. When music publishers hired a number of uh, composers, there were about a dozen of them, of the, of the main ones, uh, to compose mood music cues that would be published and sent out uh, for film accompaniment. Uh, some of these guys uh, published under two or three names, so it looked like a, a publishing out, outfit had a, a stable of composers, but uh, there this, so sometimes you look really carefully, or you know enough about their biography, um, you can you can figure it out. Uh, I think uh, Kaminsky, uh, Kempinski, excuse me, Leo Kempinski, had a, an uh, an alias um, where the last name was was uh, the town he he came from in Germany or something like that. So they're they're very clever about that. Um, but the, these were pieces of music where you had one mood that would sustain for three minutes, whereas a piece of classical music might shift moods. Um, so you would you, these would be published. And the, the amazing thing about a lot of this music is that there was one arrangement. Whether you had five pieces in your orchestra or 70, there was one arrangement. There's a large orchestra version and a small orchestra version but the large orchestra version was the small orchestra version with the second trumpet part and oboe part bassoon um, and those parts for the small orchestra version were just cued in other words if you look at the music you'll see smaller tinier notes and then they'll say write the word oboe next to it so that oboe line uh, if important could be covered 
but it was really up up to the the local conductors and, and uh, musicians to figure that out. And even the the piano parts uh, per se worked as the conductor's score. Usually, a conductor's score will have every per, every mus- musical line: violin one, violin two, viola, cello, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But for the most part, basically, the conductors had this piano th- part, and some of those piano parts are written in three staves instead of a left hand and a right hand. It's left hand and right hand and another right hand or something like that. And it was really up to you, the pianist, or if you were an organist using this music to arrange or rearrange it uh, to to suit your, your needs. And you could take a piece of music and play it a different way or take it, uh, the melody up an octave or, or whatever. Um, it, it, it was really, you know, you had you had that sort of freedom. There are also people like Lee Irwin and the person who taught him. Now, Lee was playing in the 1920s himself, uh, who couldn't read music or 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 basically because they could improvise, did. And there was a there was a wide range of what was happening uh, from complete improvisation all the way through using this photoplay mood music and exactly following the cue sheet that had been sent out by Photoplay Music or the Thematic Cue Sheet Company or what have you, or or a cue sheet that you might find in a trade publication. I've seen cue sheets in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art where the local conductor has written in their own ideas in the margin, uh, whether they had uh, that particular piece or they didn't or they just liked something else better or the orchestra knew something you know, it was it was all over the map, and I I had never really until about four about four or five years ago really delved into this music. Uh, for the longest time, it just wasn't available. Did I mention sfsma.org? So now it's a, a lot more of it's available, but it was just really hard to find unless you knew that there was a large collection at a special collection at a particular library that you could get to and could pay the fees to get copies made once you got copyright clearance on anything that was still under copyright, blah, 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 blah. Um, so it was very hard to get your hands on the stuff. Uh, and then, you know, in the last maybe 10 or 15 years, more and more of it has, has been turning up. Um, Lee himself was never a huge fan of the stuff and, and never really used it. Uh, I was contacted by a gentleman who, uh, who came up to me at a, at a show I was playing up at Bard College, uh, who was interested in publishing a book of this music. Um, and uh, I did a great deal of research on it uh, and played through several hundred pieces of this music, uh, some from a collection I had, some from uh, collections from other collectors, and and uh, some from the... The, there's a very large collection of over 800 pieces at the Library for the Performing Arts here in New York City. And it's all, you know, most of it is very good music. Um, if you can, you know, learn it and, and, and play it with effectively, and you're not just sort of playing it like a metronome, uh, but put some expression into it. You know, these, these guys were writing, these were all very well-trained composers, and the music is really supposed to sound like classical music so you could use Beethoven and Schumann and Mendelssohn and Kempinski and Zamischnik and uh, all the other uh, uh, various uh, composers who worked on the created these pieces and it wouldn't sort of jump out as library music in the middle of 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 the other stuff Um, so I've grown to appreciate the music more and uh, and there's a few pieces that I have learned and occasionally will will drop in. Uh, my my concern, of course, is that there will be people in the audience who have become familiar with this stuff. And one of Lee Irwin's big rules was to, to never use recognizable music because then somebody in the audience will go, oh, he's playing so-and-so, or oh, she's using that sonata. And then you're out of the reality of the film because you've been distracted. So I... It's a, a tough call. Um, one of the things that uh, I guess probably the first time I really ever heard this stuff, although I wasn't really aware that that's what I was hearing, is there was a record that Arthur Kleiner did in 1967. Now, Arthur Kleiner was the Museum of Modern Art's first film accompanist. 
Um, he started there in 1939, I think, uh, and uh, and finished and retired in 1968 or nine. Um, find the liner notes online somewhere from from the record. It has the dates. I'm not going to Google while I'm doing this. Uh, but he was there for, for quite a long time, and he made these two records, uh, uh, Musical Moods for the Silent Pictures and Music for Silent Comedies. And in the 1970s, there people from the northeastern U.S. will probably remember this. There was a program uh, on public television done by a man named Herb Graff, uh, working with William K. Everson and Walter Kerr, showing classic or just slapstick comedies. Not just Keaton and Chaplin, but Max Sennett comedies and Hal Roach comedies and Lloyd Hamilton, just uh, everything that they had, and largely sourced from uh, Herb Graff's collection and from Everson's collection. And there were there was this record of music that I have ground into my head that they needle-dropped, and when I started playing for films in college, uh, I think it was Charles Silver uh, at MoMA loaned me his copy of the Musical Moods for the Silent Films uh, LP from Kleiner, and I listened to it, and uh, I my eyes popped out of my head. Well, my ears popped off of my head because I suddenly was hearing three or four cuts that I'd heard over and over and over and had stuck in my head from this record and the record has uh, uh, several pieces of this photoplay mood music on it uh, and what's interesting is that if you see the sheet music and you hear his recording you can see you'll hear that he's rearranged it uh, either cutting it or made his own choices about how the 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 the, um, the, the chords are voiced and where the melody is played which you know he was playing in the 1920s and 30s in Berlin before coming to the U.S., uh, becoming among other things Balanchine's accompanist, and then also playing uh, at MoMA for many many years. So with that in mind, here is a cut from Musical Moods for the Silent Films, which also appears on Music for Silent Comedies. It's one of my favorites, and if you saw the Herb Graff show in the 1970s, this will instantly sound familiar to you. It's a piece called The Philanderer by Bertram Srawley. Here it is, played by Arthur Kleiner. Thank you. 
Arthur Kleiner at the piano playing The Philanderer by Bertram Srawley, a piece of photoplay or silent movie mood music composed in the early 20s. I I tried for... I had a hard time finding that piece. Uh, I, I looked at a number of collections and couldn't find it, which kind of surprised me. Clearly, Kleiner had it in his collection, and uh, it, it, it did turn up in his collection a few months ago. Um, I had had an idea to do a series at MoMA showcasing Kleiner's work because he played, he was, you know, he played for films on a regular basis at MoMA for more than a couple of decades, and no one's heard his music since he retired. Uh, his collection is, uh, all of his music went to his special collection at uh, the University of Minnesota. And just as I was planning this and talking to a couple of curators uh, at the Department of Film at MoMA about this, a student at that university contacted the film department to find, because she was doing a paper on, on Kleiner and was trying to find out what MoMA had on him. I got in contact with her, um, Dawn Klotzbach, and we worked together, and she actually was able to go into the collection and uh, uh, find some of the music. Uh, what the interesting thing for me was, most interesting is that while there's there are tons and tons of his scores in the collection, what they turned out to be, at least the the handful that we that uh, Dawn was able to find and look at and and tell me about, was that they're on music manuscript paper, but it's like little four or five bar musical ideas scribbled uh, in pencil with a long list of story ideas. So I thought, oh, it's not just me who worked this way. Kleiner did the same thing. So that that was that was sort of encouraging. Um, I have actually uh, done a, a compiled score uh, some uh, about five or six years ago. I did a score for Grandma's Boy, uh, mostly compiled. I would say the main themes of the film: uh, Harold's theme, the love theme, uh, and maybe two other themes were pieces that that I wrote uh, and arranged in a similar uh, manner to the way the mood music pieces were arranged. And then the rest of the score was uh, compiled from existing mood music cues. And that was performed by the Boise Philharmonic, an orchestra I've worked with on and off for almost 10 years now. Initially, I was working um, with their youth symphony, who would license my orchestral scores every year. And now uh, my my they, my scores are licensed by their their the grown-ups, uh, their professional orchestra, their chamber orchestra for the last four or five years. Um, and I go there almost every year, and the orchestra will play one or two of my orchestral scores, and I'll accompany a couple of films on the organ because they hold their concerts at the Egyptian Theater in Boise. It is pronounced Boise, not Boise with a Z. Um, it's Boise because it's from the French word for tree. Uh, but the Egyptian Theater has uh, the original installation, Robert Morton Theater organ there. So folks in Boise get to hear orchestral and theater organ accompaniment uh, to a silent film. I also have uh, three of my scores that I've written for orchestra have been reworked for concert band. Now, there there were no concert bands accompanying silent films in the silent era. As far as I know, maybe they're... Maybe, you know, uh, Sousa got a, a gig doing this uh, or something like that. But most, of the, as far as I know, all the mood music cues that you can find are for orchestra. But a high school in Milford, New Milford, Connecticut, um, contacted me about five or six years ago because uh, they wanted to do something with their concert band. And I thought, well, what the heck? And I, I reworked. Uh, my score for I think it was the adventurer, and then have reworked my scores for cops and the immigrant for concert band. And I, I've I, you know these get licensed by a few different or uh, ensembles, high school or university or community bands around the country. Um, even there's a, a band in at a university in Spain uh, that booked a couple of these uh, because really because. These are the only ones really on 
planet Earth, as far as I know, if you go online and type in silent film score concert band, you just come right to my website. Um, and so it's it's what's nice about it is that it means that groups that have a concert band and want to do a silent film can do it. And that's the thing that it blows my mind. Um, you know, I tell people, oh, I have, you know, my scores have been licensed. And, oh, isn't that wonderful? Well, what blows my mind is that a a band conductor in, you know, Hot Springs, South Dakota, which has really happened, uh, comes up with this idea and then and says, well, let me find a score. Uh, or in twice it's happened that a, a high school student has come up with the idea. You know, it would be great as a fundraiser for the Southeast Minnesota Youth Orchestra would be to do silent movie. Let me talk to my teacher or my mom, and they'll find find uh, find me online and book book the scores. Uh, that that just absolutely blows my mind. One uh, unusual thing I, I that came out of some of this is that I was uh, commissioned uh, to write a trio. There's a group called the Palisades Virtuosi, which is clarinet, flute, and piano, who have for several years. Um, because there isn't a huge amount of literature for that grouping, uh, they, they, they do fundraisers, they're a not-for-profit, and they commission composers to create works for clarinet, flute, and piano. And I think around 2005, they commissioned me to write a piece of music, around 10 minutes, uh, which uh, they recorded. They they do an a, a CD every year of the original works that they've commissioned, and I decided just because I'm not a composer. You've heard me play. I'm not really a composer, and I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, but uh, just to give myself a, a framework, uh, because I do not have a PhD in sonatas or anything, uh, the, I, I just took the basic structure of a one real comedy short and created a piece of music that sounds like uh, uh, what a, a one real comedy short might look like. And I called the piece The Spice of the Program. And those of you who know uh, a lot about silent comedy shows shorts will, uh, will get that reference. From their CD of American Masters volume, I forget, two or three, here is uh, a couple minutes from... My chamber piece, The Spice of the Program, performed by the Palisades Virtuosi. excerpt from The Spice of the Program, a chamber piece for flute, clarinet, and piano commissioned by and dedicated to the Palisades Virtuosi, a piece I composed in 2005. And once a year, once every two years, 
Somebody from a trio with those instruments contacts me looking for the music. It's almost worth the effort I put in writing the piece. Coming up for me, and again, I'm recording this in December, but and you're probably listening to this in January 2015. So I'm I'm going to think I have things lined up already that I can tell you about that are current if you're listening to this now in January. In January, if you are in New York, please come see Everybody Gets Cake. It's a new show by Parallel Exit. And Parallel Exit is a, phys- a physical comedy troupe, a physical comedy theater group that's been around for several years. Uh, I did music for a children's theater program called Museum Trip that they did a few years ago. And they're great people to work with. Um, some of them are dancers. A couple of them are clowns. There's one gentleman in the group who's a former Ringling Clown. And this is a new show of theirs uh, at, that uh, I don't know. I don't have a lot to say about it uh, uh, because it, it, as of December, it's still being developed and written. Uh, but I will uh, undoubtedly be doing underscoring. Uh, and uh, there's a song or uh, a movement piece. I may even get to do some business with the, the guys in the cast. So if you are in New York or commutable to New York City, uh, look for Everybody Gets Cake at 59 East 59 Theaters. I'll be at the Schimmel Center at Pace College doing the Mark of Zorro toward the end of the month. Uh, also toward the end of the month, uh, look out for information on the release of the Marcel Perez Collection DVD and a book that I'm publishing called Marcel Perez, The International Mirthmaker, written by Steve Massa. It's an amazing book, uh, heavily researched by Steve and with more than 50 rare lobby cards and still images from Perez's work. If you have not heard of Marcel Perez, not because I made it, but please check this guy out. It's like rediscovering Roscoe Arbuckle or Charlie Chase all over again. He's hilarious, and he's got a great directorial sense. You'll wonder why you never heard of him when you see his films. And and speaking of another DVD, uh, The Mishaps of Musty Sufferer, again, if you do not have a copy of it, do pick it up. These films are hilarious and insane stylistically uh, they come out of nowhere and stylistically disappear just as quickly 30 of them were made 1916 to 1917 24 survived with the Library of Congress and we put the best of them on a DVD and there's a couple on YouTube if you are in the UK go see the mishaps of Musty Suffer at the Bristol Silence Slapstick Festival you will uh, there's a program that is happening in the in January I'm stalling while I pull up my calendar sorry on January 23rd 2015 a program of four hilarious mishaps of musty suffer comedies accompanied by John Sweeney and introduced by drumroll please Bill Oddie if you saw a show called The Goodies on public television in the 1970s. Uh, Bill was one of the three guys on that show, and one of the things I loved about the show is that every program had two, one or two sequences of slapstick sight gags that where they would they would crank at 16 or 18 and just do sight gags. Uh, so definitely show up for the Musty Suffer show at uh, in Bristol. I would like to thank you for listening to this, if you're still listening, uh, for finding the podcast. If you found this interesting, hooray. Um, I want to thank Kendra Leonard and the Silent Film Sound and Music Archive, or SIFSMA. Do check it out, www.sfsma.org. Uh, for putting this all together, cracking the whip, making sure I actually do a podcast. I thought nobody was listening to this, and I went on to FeedBurner, and it turned out that there were three to 400 downloads of my previous episodes over the last year or so. So, thank you. Please uh, help get the word out. 
People always say when I do shows, why did this? Why wasn't this advertised more? Well, advertising can only do so much. But now that there is Twitter and Facebook, um, we as audience members can make those seats in at shows fill up uh, and get the word out by just by posting a link online somewhere saying, "I just saw this. I'm going to this. I just heard this podcast. It's great." then all the people who follow you on Facebook or Twitter uh, will find out. It's a ripple effect. If, it, if you can hear the sound of my voice, post a link if you like this. And if you can, write a review on iTunes for the podcast and see if you can figure out how to get it posted. A lot of people have written reviews for, for this podcast on iTunes, and it, just, and it doesn't appear. If you can figure out, if you can figure out what, what works... Let me know, and I'll send you a DVD of something with my score on it. I am on Twitter at, at Silent Film Music. I am on Facebook as well. I encourage you to follow me on my fan page, because uh, there will be more information about my, my gigs there. And I look forward to uh, coming back for another episode of the Silent Film Music Podcast. Everything you've heard is copyright 2015 by Ben Modell, all rights reserved. That means anything I've said, as well as all of my music, is copyright by me. Please do not reuse it without any permission. We thank you so much. Thank you, Kendra, and thank you for listening in. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast. I'm Ben Modell saying, I'll see you at the silence. You've been listening to a reposting of Episode 6 of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell, which was originally posted on January 7th, 2015. Thanks.